My name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Today I'm linked up with Steve Mills, who those of the same generation as myself will know very well from his exploits as a dinghy angler, Sea Angler magazine columnist, England international and holder of the current Threshershark record. A fine set of credentials. But you don't get credentials like that as some sort of God-given right. They have to be earned. So before getting down to the business at hand, which is fishing for thresher sharks, can you first give us a brief overview of your earliest recollections of fishing and your rise through the sea angling ranks? I think uh, it was in the blood because my father gave me the bug. Uh, I was born in Africa in a little place right at the foothills of Mount Kilimanjaro. And the year before, my father got married and went trout fishing on Kilimanjaro during his honeymoon which kind of uh, you know, puts it in perspective. I have fished ever since. I've had the bug from the age... We came back to the UK when I was four or five years old and I've boat fished since the age of six with my father at every opportunity. So it was entrenched in there so that by the time I went to boarding school, by the time I came out of boarding school, I already had a boat and it's just gone from there, strength to strength, deeper, wider, more research, just never stopped. And that would be on the match fishing side... Match fishing was what I really got into, the boat match fishing, I really got into it. That was in the early 70s when I first started doing that and I just had the right aptitude. And again, what I discovered was that very few people were prepared to put the effort in that I was. The research in going out the day before of of a competition to check out where the fish are. So I go back the next day and I already knew where everything was to go out the night before and get fresh mackerel. There was a huge amount of effort I was putting in, which others weren't. And it paid off. And, you know, therefore success breeds success. You keep doing it, you do more of it. And I had a very successful competitive career, if that's the word, you know, running right the way through, really, to 1991, when I was fishing for England and won the World Championships with England. Was that individually? No, as the team, I I think I was, uh, you know, fifth in the overall standings or something, and... uh, that was one where uh, Jim Presley, he won the world championship and the individual gold, but uh, the England team won the gold. So uh, that was the sort of the crowning glory from the competitive point of view. So what then are your competitive preferences? Species hunts, those based on total weight, individual fish? Everything. Anything and everything. Whatever somebody... You come up with the rules and I'll try and win within those rules, whether it's uh, every type we've had. Overall aggregate weight, which disappeared about 20 years ago. And then if it's aggregate weight, it's based on only three or four fish of each species. That works or percentage of British record or you name it, I'll compete against it. Yeah, like at Wexford, where we first bumped into each other walking along the beach way back when. Well, I am off in three weeks time to Wexford on my own in my boat just for a week's practice for this September's Rosslare Festival. Now that's dedication. But out of all the things you've achieved, what for you is the highlight? Oh, oh. To be honest, one of the best highlights I haven't even mentioned, and that is taking my boat to Ireland, and it was during the noughties, I think it was 2003, um, Sea Angler magazine used to organise with the Irish Tourist Board these trips, and I, I was very lucky to be involved in them. And we went off uh, Brandon Head, off the top end of the Dingle Peninsula. 
And again, I'd done a huge amount of research work on charts and tidal flows and everything else. And I saw a little depression, which I thought, this has got to be worth fishing. And I took Mel Russ and my mate uh, Dave, and we anchored up there for the last couple of hours one afternoon and had four common skate straight off. And I thought, oof. So Dave and I went back the next day. We had 12 common skate, a white skate, and a 120-pound six-gilled shark. We had 14 fish over 100, three different species. All of which leads us very nicely into the business at hand, dinghy fishing for thresher sharks. Now, as most sea anglers will know only too well, there are those species of fish which are pretty much guaranteed to come along if you put baits in the water often enough, and those that will elude most of us for most of the time, no matter how hard we try. For my money, falling well and truly into that elusive category is the thresher shark. So to target catching one and actually succeed even once in a lifetime is a very special moment indeed. To my knowledge, only a handful of people have actually taken on this task and completed it. From a numbers perspective, I suppose the most prominent thresher man has to be Gosport charter skipper Ted Legg, though providing access to them rather than catching them himself. From speaking to you earlier, I know that both yourself and Ted Legg independently came up with similar solutions and conclusions for catching thresher sharks. I suppose being a charter skipper out there pretty much every day, weather permitting, Ted was always going to be in pole position when it came to winning the numbers game. But, credit where it's due, your fish came entirely as a result of your own efforts aboard your own 17-foot boat, on top of which, not only did he work out the how, where and when, you also took the rod and beat the fish, which as a small boat angler myself, I can appreciate must be right up there with the most satisfying of achievements in your angling lifetime. The key thing to me was that the opportunity to even do shark fishing in your own boat had not arisen before, for me, 1979, because uh, my angling club had originally had a, a little hut on a shingle beach, and we used to launch boats up and down a shingle beach, and then the council wanted to redevelop the area, gave us a lovely new uh, opportunity for a new clubhouse, but the compound was behind the clubhouse, and instantaneously and overnight, we suddenly had to put boats on trailers. And that was the opportunity for everyone in the club to upgrade their boats. And I got, in those days, what was a very reasonable boat for the purpose, a 17-foot Shetland. And it wasn't until I had that boat in 79 that I could really have entertained this sort of shark fishing. But having done that, we then started to look into it. And it wasn't necessarily thresher shark fishing that I went into. It, I went into the, the idea of catching a shark in a small boat. We did one poor beagle in the first summer that we tried it and then after that it, I just got more and more into it and uh, really that's how it all developed you know an opportunity had the boat and the desire and presumably enough for nous to be able to work out how to do it. And let's not forget the background stuff too. The homework, the attempts and the failures as well as the successes all leading up to that moment when you know you've done it. The British Thresher Shark record. Yeah, I mean, there is a tremendous amount of background work that people don't see, the poring over charts and poring over all the reports and what's been caught. And then I've delved extensively into the biology. You go into every bit of fish identification information, all the books, how they behave, what they eat, water temperatures, if you can get information. I mean, it was obviously the, the days of the Internet, so you could delve quite deeply. And I did a lot of research and came to the conclusion that... Uh, at that time, we had packs of poor beagles running up and down the English Channel, but there was this chance of a thresher. 
and what, how did we get the thresher? And so I was keen to see when did they arrive, and that's how we ended up, you know, myself, a couple of others, we ended up really identifying it was a corridor about three miles wide. It started south of St. Catherine's Point on the Isle of Wight and ran east, south of the Nab Tower and sort of curled in towards West Sussex. And as far as we could make out, virtually every thresher that had been seen or encountered or caught was pretty roughly in this corridor. I think it's important here to fully appreciate the level of difficulty that you took on. Could you then outline what the catches you've made have contributed to your knowledge of thresher shark numbers and distribution in British waters? It's certainly a worldwide species. Um, I mean, the, the same species, I think it's Alupius vulpinus, the Latin name, they grow up to a thousand pounds. And the, I think the Broadcourt world record's over 900. So, the, you know, the ones we're getting in the English Channel are relatively small, but I, I think that we're at the northern distribution. They're a warm water shark. And the ones that come into the English Channel, clearly they're caught in nets down off Plymouth. I've got numerous uh, records from fishing news and things like that down Plymouth Way. But from angling perspective, there's virtually no record anywhere other than sort of off Dorset, off Pool, off the Isle of Wight, my area, eastern approaches to the Solent, and then into West Sussex. And there it seems to stop. And having said that, the original record was Dungeness. We don't know very much about that fish, apart from the fact that it existed on a record book for 50 years before anybody challenged it. But yes, we're really, there's a 50 mile length of coast, Dorset, Hampshire, into West Sussex. And that's the extent, I think, of where threshers are really have been hooked on rod and line. When we spoke in the past about this, you mentioned the theory of migration, starting in the west and heading eastwards to a certain point, then going back into reverse. We've had so few threshers really to, you know, if we'd had hundreds, you could have drawn a map of it. But the indications are that the first ones were probably arriving in off the south of the Isle of Wight in this sort of geographical area I've described, probably end of June. And then they definitely do move as far as we can make out. The, the ones that are seen off Sussex aren't seen until sort of July, August. And then they definitely come back. They don't think there's any part of the midsummer where we wouldn't might actually catch a thresher shark off the Isle of Wight. But certainly West Sussex, the only time they see them is really midsummer, August. And I think there's an evidence to suggest that the, the females that may be in pup ready to drop their two or three little pups do so inshore in August because there are cases inshore and in the eastern approaches to the Solent where anglers have caught very small threshers. I've been in a boat with one where it's quite a shock when you're fishing with just ordinary skate gear and suddenly a, a little thresher shark comes popping out on the surface at you. And I know a number of people have experienced that and those fish have obviously just been born. So I, we reckon that the fish are migrating east from maybe mid-June and by the middle of August they're migrating back the other way. And the evidence for that as well, pool boats have caught a few in September and they must be on their way back out. So it's a migration June, August and then back the other way by September they're sort of gone. Obviously there are similarities between fishing for threshers and say blues or poor beagles. But there are also differences too. Can you then compare and contrast the different approaches? Up to a point, a shark is a shark is a shark. They're going to eat fish. You know, they're carnivorous. 
all we've caught the threshers on. We've had three really big threshers, decent threshers, and they've all taken a whole mackerel, the same bait you would use for poor beagle or any other shark. But the difference is really is that uh, around here we've only got the two species or had the two species, the thresher and the poor beagle. The poor beagles, I think, as far as I was concerned, they seemed to be initially a bit deeper and we'd fish a bit deeper for them. The threshers, because their natural instinct is to herd small fish on the surface, they feed on, they're a mackerel shark, they feed on mackerel, they're probably existing and swimming in, in the, the upper echelons of the, of the water. And we used to fish using balloons as floats, and we'd fish the baits 20, 30, 40 feet down for threshers. Didn't stop you catching the old poor beagle, but if we were actually after thresher, I'd fish shallower. What about the rubby-dubby situation? Yeah, rubby dubby is obviously a very important consideration. You know, they all call it chumming in various parts of the world. We've always called it rubby dubby. Um, we know sharks have got a tremendously sensitive smell. They can taste tiny droplets of blood at a huge distance. And therefore, we concluded that rubby dubby was vitally important. And the tendency is always to use up mashed up mackerel. My technique for the rubby dubby, for whatever sharking I'm doing, we used to run two cheap onion sacks that was the was the simplest way of uh, presenting it and there's the mash that you make but we'd always run two onion sacks reason being that we would replace the contents or add to the contents quite regularly and to have one out the water meant that the other one was continuing the slick so by having two in the water you never broke your slick which we felt was quite important the other thing we'd do is whenever you drift in a boat the boat's broadside on to the drift so we'd have um, one rubby dubby sack deep on the side that you're drifting away from and the other one shallow on the uptide side so that the slick had to go round the boat before it could escape. So that you'd have a, a widening slick on the top and a deepening slick from the other side. And that we thought was, was it helped it. But uh, yes, it was mashed up mackerel and we'd bring another 10 mashed mackerel into each bag on a regular occasion to keep the, uh, the, the fresh scent going all the time. My experience of Rubby Dubby is a long continuous drift and slick for blues and short broken localised drifts and slicks for poor beagles. So where do threshers fit into the great scheme of things? Um, the threshers we've always tended to do very long drifts. I mean I've, I've, I mean I've literally on an odd occasion I've drifted all day and not moved. You've just kept the same drift going from first thing in the morning till when you pack up. That, to me, keeps your slick going. There's always some form of slick that's left the boat that something can inter intercept and smell and home in on. The only times we've broken the slick has been intentional on the odd occasion, particularly when the tide eases and the slick seems to sink, you can bring loads of taupe up and the taupe will just attack all your shark baits and you know, ruin the shark fishing. So on an occasion like that, you know you've, the sharking's out the question and if you keep putting the rubby dubby in, all you're going to do is attract more taupe. So we will actually wind in and pack up and, well not pack up, but you, you move two or three miles and start again and hope to keep away from the taupe that way. On another famous occasion, I had the boat completely surrounded by a pack of spur dog that were attracted by the rubby dubby. I actually had spur dog attacking the rubby dubby sacks on the side of the boat. So uh, shows how well it works. And in terms of how the fish reacts to and takes the bait? Well, again, not too few experiences, but every single one, it's just been a, a screaming run. There's no mouthing at the bait and a few jerks or anything like that. It's just gone. 
it's just suddenly the really wraps at high speed and you lose a lot of line very quickly so uh, for the purposes of strike I can't ever remember strike I remember picking up a rod and arching into a fish that's the strike because you're tightening up against a fish that's screaming off and you've probably already lost a hundred yard of line whereas poor beagles they'll mouth the bait and pull a bit and then they'll run off a bit and different ball game they're sort of inquisitive and bite and not freshers bang gone that seems to be their way of operating you also mentioned in previous conversations the dangers of getting spooled absolutely i've now caught quite a large variety of different species of shark uh, including as you're aware i've just come back from the florida keys where we've got lots and lots of sharks and I, I don't think I've ever had a fish in my life that's run as far in one run as a thresher shark. We catch really big black tips and all sorts of things in the Florida Keys, but they'll only run off a certain distance. That's in shallow water. A uh, poor beagle will run off, and I've never had a poor beagle do more than 100 metres before stopping, and then you have to sort of do something with it. But certainly the, the record thresher took about 200 metres on its first run. It just went and went and went and went unstoppable and unfortunately when it stopped and I catch your breath and keep the line tight it then went off again and certainly at one point I know I had close on a quarter of a mile of line out and I've never ever had that quantity of line out with any other shark in any other circumstance and so my feeling is that uh, certainly with the thresher the length of line you've got on the reel is quite an important consideration if you're going to really target one of these seriously because they really really can take you to the cleaners if you haven't got enough line. I assume that things also differ down at the business end too. Yeah, I, I mean, quite clearly, the record fish was 13 feet 9 long. I had to measure it because I also um, applied to the Shark Angling Club of Great Britain for their records, and they wanted all the measurements and girth and God knows what else. So I, so I remember measuring it 13 feet 9. Now, the, the Shark Angling Club of Great Britain at the time also had a maximum trace length which I, from memory I think was 15 feet. You couldn't have a longer trace than that. Almost exclusively using 12-0 mustard Seamaster hooks in those days, you know, a really strong shark hook, attached to a four feet of very heavy wire that they couldn't bite through, and then that would be attached to some 200-pound wire. And it's that length of that overall trace that couldn't be longer than a certain length, otherwise the Shark Angling Club wouldn't allow you to claim a, um, any records. So, uh, yes, that puts a perspective on. If you, if you had a 12-foot trace and a 14-foot shark, then its tail is going to be able to smash your main line as it runs away. What about bait? Because for the size, threshers have a comparatively small mouth. Yes, they've got a relatively small mouth, but I think from memory, the thresher is a similar proportion mouth to the size of body as, as would be something like a taupe. So it may be relatively small, say, compared to the huge great mouth on a poor beagle, but equally, it's still big enough to take a, a whole mackerel on a 12-0. certainly did three times for us, so that wasn't a... But we didn't consider that we were vision too big. But uh, they were the traces we were using, and they worked, so it wasn't questioned. One of the stories I heard about Ted Leggett's thresher days was that after setting out the conventional spread of shark lines, he'd also dropped one straight down deep off the bow, leaving it to fish on the hang, and that it was that bait that actually caught most of his fish. Have you heard anything about that one? No, I haven't, to be honest, not of that. 
Ted had the benefits of a 30-odd foot charter boat and he generally wasn't fishing. He, you know, there'd be four rods out for the punters. So he'd got a lot of more scope to do more things. And uh, I don't go up the bow of a little Shetland at sea, so um, it was not a, an option really. It's bad enough having two shark rods out and trying to feather for a few mackerel at the same time without complicating it with a another deep rod and or something else. We just didn't do it. We maybe didn't think of it. So therefore, I can't speak to that one. It's, uh, if it worked for him, good luck. You've given us an insight into the area you fished and the methodology. But what sort of time period are we talking about here? And how many missed opportunities, free swimming sightings and other people's catches are we talking about in total? Well, in my boat, we caught three threshers. The first big one was in 1981, the day of the royal wedding when half the country were doing something else and uh, we, we had a 261 pounder that day and that was really the one that proved to us we could do it and also gave us the thought well if we can do that we can do this record it was really the capture of that fish in 1981 that made me more determined to say okay poor beagles are there we've had a few but let's do this thresher because we can We'd had the 261 in 1981, I had the record in 1982, and we had another one about 150 um, year or so later. So I've only had the three threshers, but that still puts me ahead of many people. What about sightings? Did you ever see threshers which, for whatever reason, you didn't actually catch? Absolutely, yes. We've had one come clean out the water just off the back of the boat, which kind of, you know, woo! <laughs> no, not being caught, I wasn't, I was bassing at the time. There's an area called the Overfalls, which actually sits in this corridor. And we drift over these Overfalls with, uh, you know, live sand eel for bass and things. So I was bassing at the time, and then this thresher came clean out the water. I'd estimate that one about 200. I've also been out there on the days when it's flat calm, and there are clearly threshers doing this classic herding. And you can actually hear, you never see it, you're never looking in the right direction, but you, you suddenly hear a smash. And it's a thresher that's um, fairly close to you that's herded some mackerel and has then smashed into the, the shoal of mackerel it's herded. And they don't so much jump out, they just crash through and weaving their tail. But it doesn't half make a noise. And you look round and you see a big swirl a couple hundred metres away. And it can't be anything else other than thresher doing that. Uh, so I've seen that on you know, a number of occasions. Other people regularly see them jump clean out the water for for whatever reason. They're also herding mackerel, are they? I don't know. We never see enough of them to really get a, a real good, clear picture of uh, thresher shark behaviour. And you did this for a number of years until the law of diminishing returns told you enough was enough. Well, we'd had the three threshers. We continued to get the odd poor beagle and then slowly but surely the poor beagle, which were obviously far more popular, so they were... 10, 20 times more poor beagles than there ever were threshers. But slowly but surely they were fished out. We know that there was a, a, a French commercial boat that spent two or three summers longlining miles and miles of long lines and was reputed to have taken in hundreds of tonnes of poor beagle into Cherbourg or somewhere over in France. That's got to deplete the stocks. We continued and it reached a point by the late 80s where we did a couple of seasons without a shark. And you just say, OK, law of diminishing returns. We haven't had a thresher. We haven't had a ball beagle. We've had a lot of fun, but we haven't really caught very much. I've done the odd couple of hours out there. Uh, something else isn't working. Well, look, we've got gear on board that we can, you know, have a go at the sharking with. So we'd throw a bit of rubby-dubby over and drift for a couple of hours. But not a serious day. 
So really, it was the 1980s that uh, was the time I concentrated, and it was the early 80s that was successful. Now for the question everyone will have been waiting for. Your £323 still current British Thresher Shark record. I'm sure people will want to hear the full blow-by-blow account of that day. The whole day, yeah. By then, we were really saying, right, we're only going to concentrate on Thresher Alley, as we used to call it. And probably, I don't remember, I don't think there was too many pool wheels around anyway. So I positioned the boat so we'd get the, you know, a, a long length of a drift through this corridor where we expect to catch threshers. And it was in the vicinity of these overfalls I've mentioned before, which are about six miles south of Nab. And it was in the vicinity of those where the thresher took. I suppose we'd been drifting for about three hours without a fish up till that point, And it just tore off and disappeared 200 metres a line and uh, eventually got in, under control with it, lost another load of line. You don't chase the fish. What we do is use the boat to help the person holding the rod that's got the fish on the end to be in the best position to fight the fish. Because we're doing it in a small dinghy. There's no seat. The whole thing's done stand-up with a butt pad. No harness. It was just a butt pad. So we learnt that the best way to do it is if the person who's got the rod wants the fish 45 degrees off the bow. So that the boat's going at sort of 45 degrees off the fish, forwards. But if they go too fast, you end up with a bow in the line. And if the shark then shot off again, it would take the bow out and then suddenly hit you and there'd be a snatch. So you didn't want that. You wanted absolute direct contact between the rod and the fish at all times. So the boat couldn't go any faster than the person could wind. And so, you know, it was quite slow, a couple of knots at most, probably. The fight was backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards and after the initial sort of broaching and run off I never saw the fish again some jumped clean of the water but I didn't see this fish again until right towards the end and by then we worked it out afterwards the boat had done six miles with us running and the fish running and god knows what else and it took an hour and a half before we got the fish near the boat and we were six miles away up northwest back up towards the Isle of Wight then he had to deal with it and get it ashore, because the rules were that the British Record Fish Committee had to see the body of the thing before considering it for record status. I mean, in those days, it was a totally different ball game. People who caught shark kept them. Any poor beagles that were caught were kept. Supermarkets would fight for them to put on their wet fish stands for display and things. So there was absolutely no qualms about um, killing shark and bringing them in. I was pretty convinced that this one that I caught was the record and so that was absolutely going to come in and it was our experience of catching the 260 odd pounder the year before meant we knew how to deal with it we had a, a small flying gaff we were able to put a gaff into it hold it at the side get some ropes onto it get it tied to the side of the boat with the tail stuck right out the back out the way and then take a breather and plan what we did next and somehow, two of us dragged this shark, which must have weighed about 360 at the time. We managed to drag this shark over the side of a Shetland Sheltie. So I think there's a lot of adrenaline was involved at that point. Followed by all sorts of problems getting it weighed once you got it ashore. Well, I knew that the British record, which at the time was 295 and had been taken by another chap who had done a bit of sharking from Gosport, He'd taken his fish over to South Sea Sea Angling Club and had the record weighed there. So I naively assumed if his was weighed there, 
I'd been a member of Southie. I knew, knew I had all the contacts over there. So I phoned him up and said, I'm bringing a potential British wreck. Whoa, great, you bring it round. So I took the shot round and uh, they strung it up on their steel yard only to tell me, oh, well, it maxes out at £300. And yours goes way beyond that because it's, on a steel yard, you've got linear notches and you slide a big weight out until it balances. So the guy was trying to weigh it. So he slid the weight out past the last notch. And said, well, I'd reckon it's, it's another six notches. I reckon it's about 360. But I can't give you 360 because they're not notches. The last notch is 300. So he said, well, I'll give you 300, but that's, that's all I can give you tonight. You better take it away and find someone else who can weigh it. So uh, we had to pile it. It was using the boat as a box like a trailer for the shark. I couldn't put it in anything else. So, but I piled it back into the boat and tootled all the way back home covered it in wet sacks overnight and kept it moist and wet and everything else and I was up at sort of dawn the next morning trying to find someone who, with uh, scales big enough and eventually found a fish market in Portsmouth that could do the business. Then in went the claim. Yep the claim went into the I mean I, I by then I was already researching all everything you had to do all the the rules and regulations you had to comply with to make sure that you claimed the British Rod Court Fish Committee claim was pretty straightforward. The only issue I had with that is that somebody reliable had to identify the fish. But fortunately, I had all the contacts and I had the then chairman of the Wessex Division of the National Federation of Sea Anglers was prepared to come around at midnight and say, yes, that is a threatened shark, <laughs> which wasn't too difficult for identification purposes. It was far harder, as an aside, to claim the Shark Angling Club of Great Britain records they required a lot more they required me to send them the trace i'd been using stripping 50 feet off the main line of the reel photographs of the rod the reel um, i had to go to a solicitor and sign an affidavit that i'd caught the fish because there was only two of us in the boat so there was only one witness to capture so they made it a lot more difficult but i complied and it all worked so yeah, I mean, if you're going to do those sort of things, and in those days I, I was a, a hardened competition angler, and you, you don't look up the opportunity to claim a British record. Attitudes were also very different back then. If you brought that fishing today, there would be a public outcry. Yes. Anglers today are much more concerned about a PB or a photograph and get the fish back as quickly as possible, which I suppose is no bad thing, except that with fish bigger than the standing records released, the record list becomes meaningless, unless or until a different way of expressing the size of a fish for record purposes is found. I think you're right, and it's not only devalued for sharks. I think there are a number of other species that people have just looked at the rules and regulations and what you have to do and keep the body and you know, witnesses, this, that and the other, and people just say, oh, it's too much of a faff, I won't bother. And I think really the British, the, certainly for the sea, I, I can't speak for freshwater, but for the sea records, haven't really been upgraded very much in 10 years. I, I don't think there's been that many additions. And yes, in many cases, fish much bigger than existing records have been caught and aren't going to be claimed. And if I caught another massive thresher shark tomorrow... I'm not going to claim it either because it's going back. What would you say then to those people who say that your record is no longer worth its place in the list due to the fact that two obviously very much bigger threshers have been caught and released by Wayne Combin and Danny Voskins, both fish being estimated at around £500 from the same area that yours was taken from? Well, I'd answer it both ways. Yes, 
mine is still the record because it's the record against the rules that exist. And no, it's not necessarily the biggest fish that's been caught. Bigger fish have been caught, but they just haven't been brought in. So it works both ways. I'm comfortable either way. I accept because I know of two bigger fish, that almost certainly two bigger fish that have been caught. And I've taken a hat off to the guys for releasing them alive. In those days, a record was a record. Today, if I caught a 90-pound tope, would I kill it? Probably not. I don't need another record. What's, why do I need to kill a 90-pound tope? So I'd put that back. Why is it, do you think, that fewer sharks are about in some areas, yet plentiful in others? Also, fewer shark anglers, which means that with less rubby-dubby and baits in the water, the chances of an encounter reduce with the rarer species such as the mako, and I suppose the thresher shark too. Well, certainly the poor beagle populations were hammered commercially back in the 1980s, and they just didn't recover. There are many reports today of the odd poor beagle in the English Channel. Um, what often happens is a poor beagle seems to attach itself to a wreck and it will just sit around a wreck and pinching pollock off people's lines, etc. Easy prey. But there are no longer the packs of poor beagles like there were. That being the case, there are just hardly anyone who's prepared to put a lot of effort in, in this particular region, Isle of Wight, Central English Channel, for sharking. But I'm led to believe that blue shark, right down west off the Scillies and extremes of Cornwall, last couple of summers, they've had some phenomenal quantities of blue shark. So it's regional. Equally, we know the poor beagle is a cold water shark and there's been some huge captures of poor beagles in February up off the Orkneys and Shetlands. So it's just things move around. We ain't got them at the moment. I'll guarantee the threshers are out there. But how much effort has someone got to put in to catch another thresher? I know that when Wayne Common and Graham Pullen had their big thresher, it came on the back of seven consecutive blanks, showing that you need an elevated level of dedication and persistence, and that, as you say, the threshers may well still be out there for the catching. Absolutely. I don't see that there's anything that's really happened um, that should affect the thresher populations. The only possible consideration I would have is food. They're not going to come up the English Channel if there's a lack of food. And I think the thresher is a mackerel shark. I don't think you'll get threshers taking six-pound pollock like a poor beagle. And at the moment, we've got a dearth of mackerel. The English Channel has not had very good mackerel in the last couple of seasons. So if there's no food, are we, are we going to get shark trundling up the, the English Channel? They'll probably fall short or they'll stay in Biscay or I don't know. Pure conjecture. But they're not going to make a, a migration run right up the English Channel and then struggle to eat. Not even the satisfying instinctive need to pop off the Sussex coast? Well, they're a warm water shark. They're clearly, um, not all of them are pupping off the Sussex coast. They did in the past. The waters are warmer now. They could go further for all we know. But there's not enough sightings, not enough activity to really do anything other than guess. What advice, then, would you give to anyone thinking of going out there retracing your footsteps on the thresher scene? Patience. You have to accept that there's going to be a lot of blanks. I think the other thing that I didn't have, and this is where Ted Legg, all those years ago, had a tremendous advantage, is the continuity. He was out there day after day after day, learning where the shoals, I mean, if it was mackerel, if it was what was going on where I was going out, and I hadn't been out for the previous week, 10 days, and so you're going out, and it, you're starting again cold. You're just going out where you expect to catch them and throwing a rubby-dubby over the side and hoping. 
So I'd say to anyone, if you were going to put seven days of sharking in, make them consecutive. Give it a solid week right in the peak of the season and give yourself a chance that way. Or certainly put a block of time in so you've got some chance of working out what's about, get a feel for it. But there's going to be a lot of very quiet periods punctuated by absolutely madness when something does run off. So on the basis of all that's been said about thresher numbers, the need for patience and attitudes towards British records, do you see a record ever coming under threat? You can't say never. Um, someone somewhere down the line will catch one and, and bring it in. Um, whether it'll be the record, I don't know. But, uh, you know, someone who's just prepared to do so. Given the state of UK sport angling at the moment, the likelihood of anyone breaking that record and not unless they are completely kitted out with the correct gear, they will have thought about it. It's not going to be a fluky catch. You're not going to land a record thresher on standard boat gear. So someone has already decided that's what they're doing and they're using the correct gear. Therefore, they must have thought through the, the possibilities. And um, I think 99% of anglers these days are going to put their sharks back. I agree, and well done for that. But it doesn't solve the problem fish recorders face in how to deal with spore fish, species which can no longer be killed, and having a representative record list. And until they get to grips with it, this fiasco is going to continue. Anyway, that's not our problem. Many thanks then to Steve Mills for giving us the lowdown on what was, and still is, an absolutely tremendous fish. Fish.